From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. I'm Mark Smith, Director of the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina, and I'm your host for this episode of Take on the South. We begin today with weighty questions and what are, to some people, stunning answers. Question. Are law enforcement agencies in South Carolina allowed to seize your money or your property, ranging from bank accounts, cash, your home, all sorts of personal property, if they simply suspect that that money or property that they have seized was used in a crime? Answer, yes. Question. Can such property seizures take place even if the owner is not convicted or charged with committing a crime? Answer, yes. Question. If you are the unfortunate soul whose property is seized in this fashion, Are you entitled to legal representation when seeking to get your house, cash or personal property back? Answer, no. Question, in this situation, are you entitled to a trial by jury? Answer, no. Question, in this scenario, must the government establish proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Answer, no. This practice of property seizure in this fashion is known as civil asset forfeiture. It is not rare, and it is the law in many states, including South Carolina. How civil asset forfeiture came into being, how it works, why the system such as it is, is in dire need of reform or even abolition, is the subject of today's Take on the South podcast. Joining us today to help us make sense of civil asset forfeiture in South Carolina is Ted Morrow, Chair of the South Carolina Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Ted, welcome to Take on the South. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Before we dig in, Ted, um, full disclosure, uh, Ted's the Chair of the SC Advisory Committee, and I am a member, along with eight other people, of this committee. And collectively, uh, the committee released in October 2022 our report on this topic titled The Civil Right Implication of South Carolina Civil Asset Forfeiture Laws and Practices. So I'm deeply invested in this, um, and Ted is our chair of that committee. Ted, I know I touched on some of this in my intro, but can you tell listeners exactly what um, civil asset forfeiture is? Basically, civil asset forfeiture is the... Uh, attempts by law enforcement to seize assets that they believe were the result of illegal activity. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, the unique component of it is that it's not part of the criminal procedures, but part of the civil 
procedures. Um, it is um, not in the criminal courts, but over in the civil courts. So there's several elements to civil trials that are completely different. Um, and, you know, generally, if you look at the U.S. Constitution, it is really focused, the Bill of Rights is focused upon the issues uh, around criminal procedures. So the protections, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, to the average citizen in the civil courts is much less because ultimately it's a situation where um, the, um, the the burden of proof is so much lower. Yeah. So the key the key word in this is really uh, civil. Yes. Right. So so, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, how it might change, but when this was first brought up as a possible topic uh, for the commission to look at, um. I mean, it was almost breathtaking uh, that it even existed. And it's not that it's uncommon, it's just that it's poorly articulated or understood. So can you say something about the origins of this civil asset forfeiture? I mean, where did it come from, Ted, and, and why does it still have legs? Well, you know, ultimately... If you look at our committee and it's our approach, we really are an advisory committee and we're made up of citizens of South Carolina of all types, all ages, all backgrounds. And really what it comes down to is we really are looking at issues that that have that shock value. Um, we look at things that the average person would find out about and scratch their head and say, mm -hmm. why is mm -hmm. this still going on? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the reason why it's still going on is because it's profitable. Um, it's the, the ability for law enforcement to seize assets and to make them their own. With very little oversight, which was the particularly disturbing part to me, you know, we I had read the um, the Taken series from the Greenville News and Anderson Independent here in South Carolina. Um, I highly recommend people go to it um, and read these stories of all these people uh, who've had their assets seized, um, beaten up pickup trucks. Uh, I looked and saw pictures of kids' bikes that weren't even working in working condition that were seized. And it really blows a person's mind that in this day and time that government can seize assets and then the individual has to go and fight and get it back. Yeah, it, it, it is mind-blowing. You're entirely right. I think that's a very apt description. As part of the Commission's work and part of what we did, um, we're very careful to represent both sides or at least hear from both sides. There are some people who believe that civil asset forfeiture is appropriate and helpful. And there are some people, including the law enforcement community, who believe that it's not helpful. Correct. Um, where did this come from, though, Ted? I mean, why is there civil asset forfeiture even on the books? Well, I think an excellent source to learn about uh, the history of it is the uh, South Carolina Supreme Court's um, ruling on, on civil uh, asset forfeiture. And in it, you'll see they really basically talk about it going back to maritime law in privateers. And this idea that government could seize um, uh, ships that had violated some sort of declaration uh, of the seas. Um, and from that civil, you know, civil asset forfeiture really was with this idea that it empowered government to stop the proceeds from illegal trade, um, be it bootleggers. You had an excellent series on constables and um, the unique role that uh, you know bootlegging has in this state. Um, and it really is a way in which um, 
in these tight fiscal times, government can make money. Mm-hmm. And the, the, not only the fact that this happens, but the oversight and um, what happens to that money itself is also mind blowing in the sense that, um, you know, it, there are instances where the officers who seize these assets then proceeded to use civil forfeiture assets to purchase the actual things taken. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, trucks, for instance, um, you know, and not just drugs uh, and cash seized. Um, but, um, you know, the original idea was to go after drug dealers. And we're not talking here Lear jets. We're talking beat up pickup trucks. Um, originally, it was this idea. What really happened, I, if you look at the history, it seems that as as the assets, the smaller assets are the ones that people really don't go to court for. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would I hire a lawyer, spend a thousand or two thousand dollars to seize a pickup truck that's worth six hundred? It just doesn't make sense. Um, and because of that, that really is what led to our present situation. Um, and I'm, I know you were as shocked as I was when we looked at the stats of what type of assets are seized. Um, and you saw it yourself, the value of those assets. So like many things, uh, they begin with a good intention, and this was designed in the 70s and 80s and going into the 90s to really seize the assets of drug traffickers in particular. And we're talking, you know, the aim there was large-scale items, jets, boats, you name it. DEA, 1980s, the idea of, uh, you know, a drug courier profile, Mm. this whole uh, movement in in law enforcement to attempt to address the issues of crack cocaine and addictive drugs. Yeah, so it was born of a very particular moment, federal and state, right? And we'll get into that in a bit. a true need. Yeah, and a true need. Over time, what's happened, or what appears to have happened at least, is a contortion, a manipulation, and really a, a... a departure from the original idea of this in which it's not Learjets, it's not boats, it's cars, it's rotting not, lawnmowers, and, uh, rotting lawnmowers <laughs> yeah. pretty much, and, and also people's houses, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, these are not just small items that can be taken. No. Um, I mean, it is perfectly possible, and I, I want to unpack this a bit just so that listeners understand how this works. So, Ted, let's just say... You're driving down the road, um, maybe, I don't know, part of I-95 in South Carolina. And, you know, you might be pulled over under suspicion of, I don't know, uh, a driver's license issue, what have you, right? Sure. Or your child or your grandchild is pulled over in the car that you bought them and kept under your name. Right. So there's a suspicion, a probable cause, and you're pulled over. Illegal lane change. Right. Illegal lane change. Okay. The police officer in that circumstance then does what to lead to civil asset forfeiture? Well, ultimately, the procedures, uh, you know, reasonable suspicion, uh, the idea of, of a legal stop then moves to the area of a search. And the search is covered under the, uh, you know, the Fifth Amendment. And there is this idea that there are protections through criminal procedures, which most people are pretty aware of. Mm -hmm. However, what's happened is instead of staying on that track of the criminal side, um, when the case isn't strong enough, Mm -hmm. right, or um, it's a situation where, you know, there might have been a problem with the criminal side of the case, an illegal search or something, Mm -hmm. Now it's been moved to the civil side. You're being sued. 
uh, it sees, and actually you're suing government. I'm sorry, you're suing government, really. They're gonna take an asset, you have to go to the civil courts, and you have to file a suit to get your stuff. So the onus becomes yours. Exactly. Right. You become uh, the plaintiff. So the property seized, um, and then you have to kind of try to get it back through the court system, the civil court system. Correct. Um, are there, is there a particular group, Ted, that's more affected by civil asset forfeiture in South Carolina um, than other groups? It seems, and again, this is so difficult to talk about because the reporting requirements are, are, are nil. You know, when we got this issue at the commission, when this article was written, I mean, like any group, we immediately said, okay, this sounds unusual. Let's take a closer look at this issue. And then it became almost impossible. The Greenville News had spent almost two years investigating this all over the state of South Carolina and, and the Anderson Independent. However, when I attempted to follow up with their with their data gathering, when I attempted to say, well, is this a continuing pattern? Mm -hmm. Is this an issue of demographics? Are there, you know, what are there men or women? What are the age of these people? Are there college graduates, high school graduates? Are they people of color? Or are they um, people who, you know, I try to get my hands around this issue and see, is this really a civil rights issue? I was stymied mm -hmm. because there was no way to find out this information. So ultimately the real challenge is we don't know. All we know is that assets are being taken, that the overwhelming majority of them are be taken from people who are the least likely to fight in court to get them back, and assets of a value which makes it questionable if you even wanted to fight to get it back. Mm -hmm. So this transparency issue is very important because there is no central authority where you can say, could you tell us how much property has been seized, what it's worth, how many times you've done this, that just simply doesn't exist, correct? If I wanted to know how many chainsaws were taken, I could not tell you. Right. And no one could. But we did our work, and you did a lot of research on this in particular, and there were some conclusions that we came to courtesy of the limited statistical data that we have, and also interviews with a variety of people, victims, law enforcement officers themselves, sheriffs. Yes. And and what, what were some of those findings that you discovered? Well, ultimately, um, if you take a look at the, our report, you're going to see that um, there's really questions about um, uh, the value of the item. So it seems that overwhelmingly it's under $1,000. Uh, and 500, even under 500, I think it was what, about a third of those were under $500 assets. Um, and as you mentioned, not just directly tied to crime, um, but it seems that about 68 to 70% of the uh, seized assets at those levels were, were um, people of color, particularly African-American males. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was one um, in particular uh, that comes to mind was a gentleman who was driving through Spartanburg, Greenville area, who was um, part of this rolling thunder um, a seizure that's been taking place out there, um, who was on his way uh, from Atlanta to Charlotte, um, was a musician, was a DJ. Um, so he had cash because that's what he gets paid in. Mm -hmm. He gets paid in cash. And because of that, they were stopped. The drug dog hit on the car. They found no drugs in the, in the car, but needless to say, they took the cash. 
And, you know, for a guy like that, who, you know, to turn around and want to come back for under $1,000 worth of cash, which then the cash, we really don't know what happens to it. There are no reporting requirements of what happens to those, that, that money and how it's spent, um, either from solicitors or sheriffs or police. It's just really rubs people wrong. Um, even if, you know, uh, I'm a person who supports law enforcement and their job. And to me, it, it almost came off as degrading that uh, police officers are being sent out there to grab assets for under $1,000. Um, and for funding purposes, we as a people, as taxpayers, owe law, law enforcement the proper funding so they don't have to go out there and do this. It hurts them, it hurts the people who have their assets seized, and it it hurts our justice system. When the police are being forced to search for revenue, justice suffers. And ultimately, that's the, what I got from our report, was sure. that justice is suffering um, in this scenario, and yeah. we could do better. Uh, nicely put. So a couple of points there, just to to highlight them or accent them. The African-American population in South Carolina is about 27%, but they account for 68% or higher of every civil asset forfeiture. So there's a disproportional impact. Secondly, um, isn't there or is there a correlation between declines in state funding for law enforcement and increase in civil asset forfeiture in other words is it a direct funding mechanism for lots of especially small police departments i mean how else are they going to buy their cruisers how else are they going to buy their equipment is this what's funding this ted uh that financial incentive is is really as i mentioned just uh it's degrading yeah. to law enforcement to put them in that position it's degrading to everyone really isn't absolutely it? i mean it's it's, a, it's kind of one of those things that if if somebody told you this you probably wouldn't believe it and and that's the kind of the shock value of this uh no transparency no public databases we can't even track it um no convictions. N no convictions. No, no charges. Well, very few people <laughs> who are are charged with civil asset forgery actually are proven guilty, right? Very Absolutely. few. Absolutely. Uh, even the Supreme Court case, the South Carolina Supreme Court case, I mean, that was a seizure of a large amount of money. But, you know, most of these cases, we're never going to find out. About. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it just, I mean, I remember during our conversations with, uh, you know, when we're interviewing various witnesses to sort of mold our report, it, I think I said to one of them, does this strike you as distinctly un-American? And because it does me, right. I mean, property is important in the American, enshrouded in the American Constitution, but it seems to be suspended in this instance. It's uncapitalism. That, right, mean, it's very really odd. Personal property, private property, is the backbone of our system. It, it, sure, and not just the state system, but the federal system. And yes. I want to move on to what is the connection? Because there's federal civil asset forfeiture, and every state has it too. Yes, but there is an intimate and perturbing relationship between the federal system and the state system, um, and it's called equitable sharing. Could you tell our listeners something about equitable sharing? 
Um, there is how these assets and the financial gain from these assets is divided is really very questionable in the sense of um, it not only rewards um, local law enforcement to to work with the federal element, but then the, the, the reward is financial from the feds back to local agencies mm-hmm. for seizing assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right. I, I, I think that the ultimate challenge is, is this something we wanna do as a people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, the federal grabbing and the federal interaction with, with the states and local, um, it, it's important. Uh, and again, yachts should be seized. Um, Learjets should be seized. Mm-hmm. But we're really in a situation here where the federal government itself is has at least some guidelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we even just took the federal guidelines, including the reporting requirements, mm-hmm. South Carolina would be ahead of where it is now. now so there are federal guidelines for this. Right? There so, are so, reporting requirements. But not for every state. That very much depends on the state you're in. No, and in, in some instances, the feds, from what we understand, we've called upon the uh, National United States Commission of Civil Rights as a whole to investigate this issue closer um, when they pass off a, 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 you know, this, uh, a case um, it allows the local agency then to take it over the federal side of it and use it for assets. And to be very clear about this, um, this is uh, not a partisan issue. Is that no, correct? No, uh, it's uh, bipartisan. Uh, I, I highly recommend people go and, and see some of the videos from the Taken series. You'll see libertarians. Uh, I shared with you an article from Forbes magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really uh, about property rights in many people's eyes and um, the seizure of property without due process of law. Yeah, it's almost incredible that we can have this conversation, it seems to me. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So we issued the report last month, and could you take our listeners through some of the recommendations of the report. In, in other words, there's a big push, the push from a federal level, some state level, some states, to re- reform, if not get rid of this system. But our recommendations were largely about reforming the system. Is that right? Well, and that's because we listened to law enforcement. Right. And they did feel that it was a valuable tool for them. Yeah. And if you remember, um, they mentioned it, they compared it to tickets. Mm-hmm. And the difference between a speed trap, uh, a, a location where tickets are consistently handed out, yeah. which South Carolina, unfortunately, has had a history of as well. Uh, but unlike other states, um, not unlike other states who do the similar thing. Sure. Um, you know, that, that a guideline like uh, one sheriff mentioned, $1,000, mm-hmm. right? That an asset under $1,000 wouldn't be seized. Um, you'll see some other that um, the requirement of a conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, South Carolina has a very good legal system in the sense of, you know, when you've got a victim and reparations or some sort of, of um, compensation to a victim, um, the criminal system is very good at seizing assets. And um, some states have recommended, and we did as well, that um, that these ideas that it move away from uh, local uh, areas of, of small to um, highly effective 
um, and uh, let's say um, highly complex criminal uh, organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to tie, in my opinion, and other committee members had a different opinion. We don't want to tie the hands of going after big time drug dealers who are bringing in assets, um, you know, fentanyl and other things from outside. But we do want to put a limit on how, you know, the th- under $1,000. I think we have to have some sort of demographic information. We have to know who what assets are being seized by who. And it would seem that sheriffs, solicitors, um, even the state itself should be reporting this on a public database. Um, that, that, the inability to find out more mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the transparency around it is um, something that needs to be concerned of any. So this is not about hobbling or disadvantaging law enforcement agencies to do their job, which we recognize is important. Absolutely. It's more about kind of emancipating the average citizen from the abuse of the system. I, I see it as funding law enforcement, a call to fund law enforcement yep. so they don't have to do these things. That's right. That's right. So the state should take a much more robust approach and fund their law enforcement fully, and you wouldn't need these very small amounts that add up to quite a lot, but they're small amounts for individuals. Well, and and particularly the impact on the people, right? If somebody is having an asset of a thousand, if their truck is worth less than a thousand dollars, I mean that loss of that truck and those tools in that truck. I mean, is, is it, it could be catastrophic. Oh gosh! Yes. But now, of course, somebody would say to you, "Well, Ted, fine, but why don't you just go to an attorney to get your property back?" I don't know. An attorney would take that case exactly because the <laughs> because the proportion is so small and it's civil. That's right. So, so, so very few attorneys would take these cases. You you really have to do it yourself. And the chances of you prevailing in terms of the number of hours you're committing to this sure. are pretty remote. Sure. And on top of it, you know, with 95, 90, 95 percent of criminal cases being, you know, settled in plea deals anyway, yep, right. the case itself must be pretty weak. So, so the commission's <laughs> report, at least the South Carolina commission's report, was we need transparency. Absolutely. Right? We need to be able to track this. We need to be able to report it. We need to be able to keep an eye on its effect on low-income minority communities. Right. Right. Um, we certainly need to have a course on this idea that um, there has to be some oversight and protections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I saw some states, um, there. if you go to the website and invite people to go to the website for the United States Commission on Civil Rights, you'll see reports from Tennessee, New Jersey, um, New Mexico, and they all have similar ideas that on um, the majority of cases that um, there should, if there is not an arrest, Right, an yep. arrest. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's not even enough evidence, uh, you know, to 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 arrest someone. Then seizing their assets seems uh, pretty draconian. Indeed, indeed. Would a solution be to shift this from civil to criminal? Would that be one? Because at least that way you'd have due protection. Uh, you could have an attorney. You could have a a, a, a trial by jury. Is that a viable solution for this issue? I believe so. Um, Ultimately, again, law enforcement looks at this as now I have to build a case. Mm -hmm. And maybe I know, maybe, you know, I have a hunch. It's interesting, you know, how often law enforcement has a hunch and they have a belief. uh, But proving it is such a hard part. I think 
because of the dangerous place we're here uh, with the seizing of assets by government, we have no other choice. Mm -hmm. I hate to, to, to tie law enforcement's hands in this situation, but the fact of the matter is it was always intended to be on the criminal side. Yep. It is intended those protections on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights apply to the criminal side. And ultimately, um, it seems that that's where it belongs. And the ability, right, to have a public defender, you know, yep. public defender, um, and the solicitor to have his input as well. I mean, I'm sure that the the counter argument is that well, the the criminal courts are clogged already. It would just make it coagulated beyond function. But that's not really the issue. The issue is about justice and getting it right and going after crime syndicates. Right, 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 right. That's exactly right. Ted, now that the report has been released. Um, what is the South Carolina Advisory Committee going to do next? Great question, Mark. Uh, that's up to the committee members to come <laughs> up with, and I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say. Uh -huh. um, I have a couple ideas, um, and again, I'm just one member. Uh, it's up to the committee, but um, it certainly seems that... Um, you know, the, the role of parole um, has been something that's been looked at closely. And um, uh, to me, one of the biggest challenges has been uh, the inability of people to pay for um, their parole. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of expenses there and people can't get off parole, um, uh, you know, um, if they can't pay their fines. And that ties to voting rights. So that's one issue. I certainly think that um, I've heard a lot of people talking about predatory lending mm -hmm. and particularly around student loans. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that has concerned me. But again, it's up to the committee members um, we've had some, some questions about labor and Starbucks and, and labor law in this state um, and about the role of organized labor. Um, it's becoming more popular and it's an, it's an unpopular word in South Carolina. However, um, there does need to be protections of workers in my opinion, um, but that might be something we'd be interested in. And again, it's a bipartisan committee, so ultimately it's up to everyone. Finally, um, one that's personally important to me is the denial of mental health services to people with disabilities. You know, we came out with a report on um, uh, minimal wage, you know, uh, uh, minimum wages for people with disabilities. And um, when I found out that a person who is receiving uh, services um, for the Department of Disabilities and Special Needs doesn't have access to mental health services, it seemed to me that that was really an issue that needs to be looked at. Um, however, again, these are just some ideas and committee members like yourself and in the public, you know, all our meetings are open to the public. Right. And we, we invite the public to participate in these meetings. Certainly. And, and you know, if you look at the history of the committee, um, originally it was really about specific issues and investigation of specific issues, but we've really moved to general, the general issues that should concern all of South Carolina. So there are lots of possible issues that the committee might address this one has the reports just been released, and over the coming months, there Correct. will be increasing and there's volume. legislative action out there. You know, the, the the important part of the Supreme Court ruling was this idea that it was a political issue and had to be taken care of by the politicians. Um, so that really is a call for public input. 
Yeah, that's precisely the conclusion that the Supreme Court came to, wasn't it? This is not really a judicial question. This is a political one. It originated there and it needs to be resolved there. And so ultimately, the future of civil asset forfeiture does not reside with judges. No. It doesn't reside with politicians. It actually resides with us. We are the well will of the said, people. Well said, sir. Uh, and again, um, I, I think that law enforcement also needs to be part of the conversation and the solicitors and, and the public defenders and, and the average citizen here in South Carolina really needs to, to ask itself, are we going to fund the police to the levels that they need to, to perform their jobs in the 21st century? Nicely put, Ted Morrow. My thanks for a truly astonishing and depressing story expertly told. Thank you for being on Take Thank you the so Sound. much for having me, Mark. My pleasure. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. (laughs) 